Welcome to a special edition of the Innovation Agenda with the California Technology Council, where we take a close look at the relationship between government and the climate that supports innovation and entrepreneurship. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. On this edition of the Innovation Agenda, we're talking with Todd Gillenwater of the California Life Sciences Association about the patent reform issue that's currently in Congress. Todd, thanks for joining us. Matt, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue. Tell us about your role at the California Life Sciences Association. Sure. So um, my role is uh, Executive Vice President for Advocacy and External Relations at CLSA. Uh, what that means, uh, CLSA represents really California's statewide life sciences R&D sector. So our membership includes the state's leading research universities and research institutes, uh, venture capital firms, and the biotech, pharmaceutical, diagnostics, and medical device industry. My role is to work with that membership uh, here in Washington, as well as at the state level to advance legislation and advance policies that foster life sciences research, investment, and innovation. And on the flip side, uh, my job is also to lead the team in defending against policies that we believe would have serious repercussions and negative consequences to life sciences uh, R&D in the state. So there Never are, a dull moment. Yes. Uh, there are a number of issues that obviously pit innovators against one another at times, and uh, you know these industries are full of those kinds of issues, and you could look at anything from net neutrality to the last decade of patent reform conversations. Uh, and, and maybe this issue uh, of, of patent reform presently is a similar one. You published an op-ed in Roll Call a couple of months back, I think it was. Could you tell us about the, the general gist of that op-ed and, and what your perspective was in it? Yeah, thank you, Matt. You know, at the, and you, as you already stated, uh, you know, California is home to a number of highly innovative sectors and industries highly innovative in sectors and industries that employ lots of people in California contribute to the economy. And the issue of, of patent reform, and in the most recent case, proposals to tackle the scourge of patent trolls, has, is really, it's a debate that's really epicentered in California. And unfortunately, it's a debate that, that does largely pit uh, these sectors within California on, on either side of the line. Um, we, the life sciences sector, recognizes the, the challenges and the reality of patent trolls. And we support surgical provisions to address patent trolls. But I think the unfortunate reality at the end of the day is the life sciences sector and their reliance upon patents is a very different business model than 
the high tech community, if I could use in shorthand kind of the you know the the, the Google slash Cisco slash Silicon Valley high tech world, where there are products that are comprised of dozens, if not hundreds, if not even thousands of patents. And the nuisance of those patent challenges we understand is very significant. On the life sciences side, and especially on the biopharmaceutical side, these are products that have encompass one, two, maybe three patents. So if anything is done that uh, devalues those patents, that makes those patents less certain in the eyes of investors or companies, or makes it more challenging to defend those patents, we see that as, uh, you know, frankly, an, an, an undermining uh, of the foundation of life sciences, biomedical uh, innovation in California. So, you know, we are uh, and have been, as you alluded to, for nearly the past decade, have been embroiled in these patent-related debates in Washington that pit these segments and these important segments of the California economy uh, against each other. Thankfully, in the past, the last big patent reform debate that led to enactment of the America Invents Act uh, a couple of Congresses ago, you know, that was legislation that, that took a number of years before it finally made its way to the President's desk. Uh, and over the course of those years, all sectors of the economy ultimately kind of sat down around the table and found a path forward that addressed the concerns of our friends in the high-tech sector, but addressed it in a manner that maintained uh, patent rights, patent enforcement rights, and patent certainty for, for other sectors of the economy. And we're certainly hopeful in this current debate that we have the similar opportunity to take our time and get it done right, and not rush legislation forward that in the name of tackling the scourge of patent trolls uh, devalues and undermines the patent enforcement rights and patent certainty for a very, very significant number of entities that call California home uh, and what the implications and consequences of that would be for, for the, we believe, the California economy and for certainly for life sciences R&D moving forward. So, Todd, uh, oftentimes in issues like this, there are coalitions that pop up to work on the issue in a kind of singular fashion. They fight the issue for a while, and then when the issue is gone, they go away. In this case, the California Technology Council has aligned itself with a, a coalition like that called United for Patent Reform. One of the things that's so interesting about that coalition is there are lots of non-traditional tech players in that coalition. So, for example, the National Retail Federation is there because, yeah. as you know, in, in – uh, the kind of horror stories of trolls, they, there are instances of a non-operating entity going into restaurants run by moms and pops saying, you're using my business model for uh, Wi-Fi connectivity, and I'm going to sue you for it. And so that leads to obviously worst-case scenarios of independent businesses being uh, you know, beaten down by, as I say, these non-operating entities. Is that also happening to, to biotechs where non-operating businesses are coming back around on, you know, patent portfolios that are the basis of entire biotech companies? 
Uh, yes, and let me say first of all, you know, your characterization of the uh, stakeholders who are involved in this is, is spot on. They're, they're, uh, and in terms of some new stakeholders who are part of this discussion and this debate, and on the retailers, again, certainly we acknowledge uh, the need to address these um, these patent trolls and these uh, lawyers and others who go about willy-nilly sending demand letters to uh, retailers uh, across the spectrum threatening to file lawsuits if they're using Wi-Fi or some other technology unless they pay up. Um, and that's before I get to the kind of really the crux of your, your question, that's, that's also one of our frustrations is that the, the primary legislative vehicle in the House, um, HR 9, generally doesn't address the issues of these demand letters that are being sent to retailers and others threatening these lawsuits unless you start paying a license or pay a payoff fee. Um, on the kind of pro, I, 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 the pro-patent side, uh, if, if I could use that shorthand, um, you do have a very large community of stakeholders that includes the biotech sector, biotech sector um, but certainly uh, includes many others. So the venture capital community, for example, that in the National Venture Capital Association, the, the trade association that represents all VCs, VCs that invest in life sciences, VCs that invest in high tech, VCs that invest in mobile apps um, has taken the position that, that HR 9 uh, suggests and would undermine patent certainty, the value of patents, and would lead to um, some serious consequences down the road in terms of new innovation and venture capital funding into that innovation. Similarly, you have a, a large community of, of research universities and research institutes who license out all different kinds of technologies, life sciences, uh, biofuels, uh, telecommunications technologies, etc. There too, there is concern that some of the provisions being touted in the current legislation would have the unintended consequence, but the consequence nonetheless of diminishing the opportunity to outlicense, to spin out uh, technologies invented in the university community and then spun out into new companies or licensed to new companies and in many cases, again, uh, invested in by the VC community. Uh, the numbers of uh, entities in the traditional manufacturing space have voiced concerns with some of the provisions in this legislation that would make it more difficult to enforce legitimate patents. Again, it really comes down, unfortunately, frustratingly so, to uh, a debate between business models. And that debate between business models and the different business models between high tech uh, and the life sciences and other sectors has made it very difficult to come up with a legislative approach that will uh, meet the needs and address the concerns of the high tech and the retail sector while make sh making sure that 
legitimate patent rights are enforced and maintained. And that's, I think that's where you know, our position is we uh, are hoping that time um, and frankly pressure put on all sides to sit down and come up with a, a strategic and a, a surgical approach, excuse me, that um, addresses this patent troll issue while safeguarding, maintaining, and promoting patent rights is, is doable. But it's only doable, frankly, if, if all sides are forced to the table um, and if policymakers uh, who have championed this legislation understand the reality of the likely consequences if we get this done wrong. And I don't think, you know, I don't think any of us want to get this wrong. Um, our friends in the high-tech sector, our friends in the retail sector, and certainly the, the folks that we work with, um, we want to get this done right. Uh, we don't necessarily expect we'll be jumping for joy at the end of the day, um, but we are willing and we've shown a willingness to, to sit down and work through these very, very complex and technical issues and come up with a solution, solutions that will uh, will will address these concerns and continue to promote innovation across all sectors that call California and call the United States home moving forward. So, Todd, you've been doing this for a long time, and and despite your uh, outward appearance of being just 21 years old, you've been in Washington for a very very long time fighting these battles. So you've seen these before. You'll recall, and we talked about the last round of patent reform. Uh, you're, you're longer in the tooth than it would seem, and you'll remember things like uh, the second challenge window and how mm -hmm. uncertainty would inject all kinds of problems for the biotech industry. Could you just talk a little bit more about what uncertainty does to value in biotech and how things like a, a, any kind of longer a period of, of uh, openness or, or that kind of uncertainty really is a threat to the whole uh, biotech ecosystem? Yeah, thanks, Matt. That's that's a great question and uh, a great a great point, and it is increasingly at the crux of the current debate. So you you mentioned, and I referenced earlier the the legislation that led up to the America Invents Act. And you're right. I, you know, I've been at uh, CLSA, which uh, was formed from the the merger of the California Healthcare Institute and and Bay Bio, and I was at CHI for uh, uh, ten years. Um, have been now with CLSA for, for going on uh, 11 years, and prior to that worked on the Hill for a member of the California delegation for, for eight years. So it seems like I have been uh, part of these debates and discussions over patent reform for the better part of my, my professional career. Um, and the first debate over patent reform uh, that really, really did start some 10, 12 years ago was in large part focused on the belief, the concern that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office had issued patents on technologies that shouldn't have received patents, frankly. So there was a, a concerted effort to come up with a mechanism to allow for early challenges to patents outside of court so a new process kind of managed by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office that would allow for, again, earlier challenges to patents, for, for patents to be kind of kicked out and validated earlier, which would be better for everyone, right? We want 
quality patents in our system. Quality patents are what innovation rests on. So new mechanisms were established and have really only begun to be implemented over the past couple few years, these so-called post-grant review processes. And one of those mechanisms is actually called an inter partes review mechanism. So here we have, kind of fast forward to today, everyone kind of got together and said, look, we need these processes. Um, the, the, the frustration now on kind of the life sciences side is that these early outside of court challenges, the mechanisms by which they are being challenged, the process that is included in the challenges is heavily, heavily, heavily weighted against patent owners. So the courts have an evidentiary standard of clear and convincing evidence. You know, you really have to prove, you have to pass a high bar to invalidate a patent. Within the post-grant review mechanisms, the, the evidentiary standard is much, much lower. To where today, you know, as we talk to our members, be they a global biotech company, a startup medical device company, or a venture capital investor, their view is that patents issued by the PTO now just have automatically a big question mark next to them. If a patent is issued, these new challenge processes leave a great deal of uncertainty as to whether or not that patent is worth the paper it's written on, which then makes it that much more challenging for a biotech company or any startup company to go out and raise the money they need to move their technology forward from, a, you know, an, an idea on paper to a marketable technology. And on the biotech side in particular, the biopharmaceutical sector where it can take, as we know, a decade or more before a product gets to the market, all the while that patent clock is ticking, we now have this, this, this circumstance, this situation where the uncertainty around patents that has come about because of some of these new processes is making people question the certainty of that patent, which then if there's uncertainty around a patent, it's you know, pretty de facto going to be less valuable. So that's you know, really an issue where we're, it's now beginning to come to a head of how we tweak these post-grant review processes to allow them to continue to meet their original intent, which is to, to have an earlier process outside of the courts that allows these patents to be reviewed and in the case of questionable patents be invalidated earlier with the need to have a process that is more rigid, uh, rigid is really not the right word, is more uh, certain um, and is, uh, includes an approach that uh, allows the patent owner to, you know, frankly, defend their patent. Um, and that's, that's something that we have seen in terms of the evidence through these inter-party reviews, these post-grant review mechanisms, um, is, is not the case. These, these patents are being uh, invalidated um, to the point where now you have uh, a hedge fund investor uh, who is searching these uh, processes and shorting stocks 
um, and then filing these uh, IPR challenges uh, and walking away with a lot of money and devaluing the, 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 the patents and frankly the stock prices of, of some of these companies. Uh, you know, that's an amazing issue. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned very quickly in passing there is the clock is ticking. And in biotech, obviously, that's a, a really uh, highly pressurized situation, really in a pressure cooker for time because of the amount of time it takes to go through clinical trials and apply for a approval of the new product. So for those that are less familiar with the business model, could you just maybe explain a little bit more about that because uh, obviously biotech companies don't get to do that and stop the clock while they're going through all that investment in, in product development. Yeah, I mean, you know, generally speaking, if, if you are a startup biotech, biopharmaceutical company, you know, you have to file a patent before you really even begin the clinical stage of development. You need to protect your IP. So you file a patent and that patent clock starts ticking, uh, you go through clinical trials and you might, get in a, you might get some data back that suggests you're not quite up to snuff in terms of the uh, safety profile or the efficacy, the effectiveness profile of the, of, the, of the chemical, of the drug. So you have to go back to the drawing board. All along, that patent clock is ticking. And it's, you know, really gotten to the point where by a time a drug is actually approved by the FDA, which then allows it to be sold and marketed and prescribed, there's oftentimes uh, just a few years, maybe just a few months left of patent life. So anything that delays uh, the ability of getting these products through clinical trials into the FDA um, is of concern. And one of, the, one of the things that we see as potentially delaying or undermining that process is the, the worry, the concern that you're going to have to spend a lot of time up front and early, a lot of time and resources and money uh, defending your patents uh, versus actually doing the clinical development. If you're able to actually convince a venture capital investor or a large pharmaceutical partner to invest in you because of the uncertainty that is beginning to uh, revolve around patents due to, due to the current circumstances. So it's, it's again, very different business model than uh, the, the software industry where, you know, you're coming out with new versions of an app or new versions of an operating system every couple of weeks, if not every couple of days, when a drug maker comes up with a tweak to their drug, they can't just release a new drug. They have to go back to the drawing board and go back to the FDA and get a product approved. So the, again, this, this life cycle, the way that we, our industry innovates, the way our industry actually brings products to the market, very different from the rapid iterative nature of improving software and improving apps and improving other technologies where that churn is just much quicker and it, and, and it and comprises, is comprised of many, many more patented technologies where on the biopharmaceutical side, again, usually one, two, or three patents that make up the foundation of, of a medicine. So Todd, is there 
Is there anything out there that gives you hope that uh, there's light at the end of this tunnel or the party's going to come together? Uh, uh, is there a big dark cloud hanging over your head? Uh, what do you see coming? So if we can look to history as a guide, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm the glass half full person here, you know, the circumstances that we find ourselves in today, similar to what we found ourselves in with the America Events Act, where early versions of the legislation were frankly very, very one-sided and uh, led to the opposition from our sector and numerous others. Um, after a couple of years of that, uh, we all sat down at the table and came up with a solution that folks found at, at least satisfactory, if not having all of, none of us I think were kind of jumping up and down celebrating and popping champagne corks, other than the fact that maybe we thought we were done with patent reform for maybe 50 years, but that hasn't been the case. So, you know, I am, I am hopeful and encouraged that uh, the time that the collective we, the kind of patent owners, patent users have used to meet with policymakers and have conversations with our friends in the high tech and retail sector is, is, is leading to, we're not there yet, is leading to the recognition that we need to roll up our sleeves and get some more work done. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is uh, if you look at the two pieces of legis two primary pieces of legislation, legislation in the House and legislation in the Senate, the House legislation was introduced earlier. It was a near carbon copy of legislation that passed the House of Representatives last Congress. Um, the Senate bill was just introduced within the past couple of months. Um, and the Senate bill as it stands today addresses many of the issues that we have raised and addresses them, address them via a process where stakeholders were really involved and really required to roll up our sleeves. The House side, you know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, sad to report because that's where I worked. I'm a House guy and I'm, I really love uh, <laughs> how the House works. Um, the House process just hasn't gotten to that point. Um, the chairman, uh, the leadership of the committee have certainly made commitments and certainly assure, made assurances that they want to get to that point where uh, a broader array of stakeholders can get behind the bill. Unfortunately, to date, and by to date I mean as of today, where you know updated legislative text has been released, we're, we're, not, we're not there yet. Um, and frankly, I don't think we're close. Um, so we're hopeful that with time, with members of the California delegation in particular saying, look, don't make me pick sides here. Don't make me pick sides between my biotech and university community on one hand and retailers and Silicon Valley high tech on the other. You guys, you stakeholders, get in a room, we're going to lock the door on you and come out of that room with something that we can then support. And I think that's something we're beginning to hear from policymakers in California is don't make us pick sides. Keep working on this until we get it done right. Uh, we still have more work to do, 
Um, but I am cautiously optimistic that with that kind of pressure put on all of us, that we'll get to that point. Todd Killenwater of the California Life Sciences Association. Todd, where can people learn more about CLSA? I would be happy to, to point folks who want to learn a little bit more about CLSA and our work on this issue to our webpage. That's califesciences.org, califesciences, all one word, and S there at the end of sciences.org. Thank you, Todd, for joining us on the Innovation Agenda today. Thanks for having me, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity. This episode of the Innovation Agenda is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank, providing California Technology Council members with discounted 409A valuations. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org slash join and check the Member Benefits tab. Music for this episode was provided by Scott Fowler, friend of the California Technology Council. The Innovation Agenda is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.